Welcome to Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on all things leadership. Coming up... The best leaders do a lot more listening than they do speaking. Treating well-being as a core value of that CEO tenure is a, is a risk. To what extent do you feel you can be yourself? Dear John, and it's not one of those Dear John breakup <laughs> letters, by the way. <laughs> You're not there to have the answers and to fix. You're not qualified to do that. What you are qualified to do is be a human and listen. It's powerful. Hello, I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers, and welcome to Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on all things leadership. This podcast is a place for leaders to hear and to share their experiences to talk about what and who has inspired and driven them and how they go about the work of being a leader. Later then in the Leadership Letters Lowdown, we share even more food for thought, ideas, inspiration, tools and resources to support and challenge you as you navigate all that leadership entails. And with tons to get through this month, let's get straight to introducing our guest. He's an international keynote speaker and mental health campaigner on a mission to help create happier, healthier, and higher performing workplaces. He personally experiences bipolar disorder and is the founder of the Inside Out Leaderboard, a charity with the mission of smashing the stigma of mental ill health in the workplace by showcasing senior leader role models like himself with lived experiences of mental ill health. He's also the CEO of Formscore, a revolutionary technology startup that helps employees become more intentional about their well-being and helps employers with real-time well-being analytics. He's also co-founder of the Inside Out Awards and with tons to talk about, I'm delighted to welcome to the Leadership Letters podcast, Rob Stevenson. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us. Lizzie, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Rob, I always start like this. I always start with a memory of when you became aware that leadership existed, that it was a thing that happened either around you or with you or that you did. So so very strangely for a lad growing up in uh, the Midlands in in England, uh, I was really into basketball, ended up playing quite seriously, but... I was kind of watching it during the heyday of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls um, and just really got to see how someone in an elite sporting contest could really just take a team forward with them, but then also stand up and be counted uh, for the yeah for the game winning shot when the pressure was on Michael Jordan would have the ball and you know invariably he would pull off a miracle you know score to win the game and that was the magic but it was more that the understanding of how to bring people along and then take that responsibility and I think ultimately great leaders from a sporting perspective bring their team up I guess a lot of my insights to leadership came from the world of sport particularly during my kind of earlier years. Let's start with that notion of bringing people along. I love the way you've partnered it with and taking responsibility. There's something about bringing people with you, plus being willing to step up. Hmm. How have you seen that translating to the world of work? We often think of leaders as bosses, right, in the workplace. And, and, you know, being a boss doesn't necessarily mean you're a great leader. It just means you're in a position of enjoying responsibility, having the privilege of responsibility. Um, And so... You know, for me, I think we need to look at leadership through the lens of followership. And, you know, that's kind of what I what I saw with Michael Jordan. It's people wanted to follow him. You know, people wanted 
to do whatever it took to win the game because they could see his passion, his intensity, and he was walking the walk. And I think for me, I talk a lot in workplaces about creating well-being cultures, about um, prioritising the health of humans. And I think the leaders that naturally do that well are those that care about the people that are following them rather than necessarily the result that they're trying to create. And so I've seen a lot of good leadership on that agenda, but I've also seen a lot of command and control style leadership that contributes to negative mental health and well-being in the workplace. And for me, we need more Michael Jordans leading our companies and less you know, somebody that is you know, ruling by fear. I couldn't agree more. One way of creating followership is to really, truly care about the well-being of those that you are serving as a leader. Yeah. How else do you create followership as a leader? It's a, we're at an interesting time in workplaces where we companies can go kind of in a couple of different directions. And one is the direction of really trusting their people and trusting them to get their jobs done however they want to do it. The pandemic has forced us to show more flexibility and now people want more of it. And there's a lot of debate now about getting people back into the office versus not. Some companies are trying to do it. Other companies are using this as an opportunity to show that they trust their people. Trusting people, giving them responsibility, autonomy, flexibility, and the ability to act as adults in the workplace and choose how to reach the common goal. I think that's important. I also think provision of good work is really important. And, you know, I think often... We ignore that, that actually, you know, we look to give a whole, whole bunch of well-being benefits out and tell people what to do. But if that work isn't engaging, isn't purposeful, then are we truly going to be able to thrive? And I think not. So I think actually thinking about as we transition now to a world that is going to have you know, machines doing many jobs that are currently being done right now, how do we use that as an opportunity to give everyone the opportunity to have good work in their life, to learn, to learn new skills, because we're going to need to? So I think that idea of good work and psychologically safe cultures is, is another way that people will really buy into their leaders. I can't remember who it was, Rob, but somebody else on this podcast has talked about, I think it might have been Wendy Reid, how important it is that what you put in place, well-being wise, is true to the culture of your organisation. It's true to who you are. I think I hear a bit of that in what you're saying, in that you could have well-being benefits and without really also looking at things like how much are we trusting them, then those well-being things aren't necessarily going to make enough difference. Yeah, what's the relationship between the two for you as somebody who specialises in well-being? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and it's sort of at the forefront of the, the debate on workplace well-being, I think, in that a lot of the effort is on fixing the humans when work has broken them. Whereas, why don't we try and fix work to stop breaking people? You can have the best well-being strategy in the world, but if you've got a culture where bosses are forcing you to work through the night, not take holiday, sending emails at 8pm on a Friday with deliverables for a Monday morning, all of this stuff that puts people under pressure, interrupting holidays, everything else, then you're not going to have a workforce that thrives. Now, my argument is that a workforce that thrives and has that psychological safety, that autonomy, will actually deliver more because we work better when we're bought in, when we are rested, when we're engaged. You know, Michael, getting back to Michael Jordan, he wouldn't have hit all those game-winning shots if he was you know, not prioritising his sleep and had people shouting at him to, to do what he needs to do all of the time. We need to create 
cultures and leaders are, are integral in creating cultures, as we know, that prioritize well-being alongside the return of shareholder value, alongside looking after the environment. It's it's that big in my mind. And it's really interesting how that ripples out, isn't it? Because you talk about shareholder value there, and there's something about needing shareholders that value. Well, that's coming, right? That is coming. I mean, who are the shareholders that, that we're creating value for? Well, it's pension funds, basically. It's investment managers. So are we really going to slave ourselves just to create every little bit of profit so that generally the pension pots of people once we retire are a little bit higher? But OK, we're all broken by them because we've been slaving ourselves through uh, our careers. But I think pension funds um, and investment managers are starting to look at employee well-being and what companies are doing it. There was a big report out um, from the CCLA, which manage a lot of charities and la- local authorities money. And this was ranking the top companies in the UK on on how they are doing in terms of what's in their financial reports on employee well-being. So how important is the issue? So for me, I think somewhere down the line, we're going to start to seeing access to capital as an issue where fund managers realise that actually, if you're investing in well-being, you're probably outperforming your peers as a company. For leaders who are perhaps feeling a bit lost or who are maybe listening to this and noticing, actually, I do wonder whether people in my organisation are experiencing our well-being workers and add-on rather than integral and really truly impacting, where would you say is a great place for them to start to rethink that? Ask their employees. Um, a great survey question, I think Unilever do it, and I'm paraphrasing, is my employer cares for my well-being. And rate that that should be in every engagement survey yeah we, we we ask that in stuff that i do with form score um i think another good one to ask alongside it is my line manager cares for my well-being because often there's a differential between the two um and line managers can be the cause of a lot of stress in in certain cases so i think we need to ask our people how we're doing i think secondly we've got to from our leadership say that this is a real important priority a business imperative and then let that filter down there's plenty of willing volunteers in large organizations and small ones that want to make a difference on mental health and well-being we need to empower them we need to train line managers we need to do a whole bunch of stuff and think about you know resources but i think the other bit for leaders and it's obviously core to what i do with the inside out leaderboard um, is to show a bit of vulnerability a bit of authenticity And we've seen a lot more good examples of that coming out of CEOs as a result and through uh, the pandemic. But that goes a long way. You know, if you get like Bernard Looney of BP talking about the fact that he's um, had a mental health challenge and sought help doing so, then that makes it okay for employees. It gives people permission to go and seek help as well. Yeah, that permission piece of seeing other people at whatever level they are in the organisation you work with and experiencing them vulnerable and the strength that there is in that vulnerability, it's powerful. Yeah, actually, storytelling is, I'd say, the primary way we can break down stigmas, whether that's stigma of mental ill health that, that I'm so passionate about or other stigmas in our society. You know, financial wellness could be another one. Um but by sharing stories at different levels, then it normalizes the conversation. If you were to think of cancer, cancer used to be a taboo, right? It was known as the big C you know, and whispered about. Whereas 
you wouldn't think twice now um, about if you were unfortunate enough to be diagnosed with can cancer is, is talking about that with your friends and more widely. With mental illness, we're not there yet because that stigma is still very strong. But storytelling breaks it. You mentioned form score briefly earlier. For me, it's a really beautiful way of inviting, simple, but with such depth and breadth, way of inviting people to tell a bit more of their story in the moment. Can you tell us a bit more about form score and how it opens that conversation up? Yeah, sure. Well, at its simplest level, form score was a tool given to me by a therapist um, probably 15, 16 years ago to help manage my challenges of bipolar disorder by tracking my mood with a score out of 10. So today I'm a seven out of 10, which is good form. And I've, you know, that's good because I've slept well. Um, I've had a, a good weekend. I've enjoyed the weather. I'm feeling productive about work. But what's stopping me being eight or a nine? Well, I've got some physical health challenges with long COVID. That's preventing me getting out and exercising. And I've got a bit of hay fever. What it did for me over the years was really help me build up an understanding of my wellness. Now, as a campaigner, I started sharing that number and people started interacting with it. And what I discovered was the numerical score out of 10 is a very non-threatening language of communicating how we're feeling. So if you said to me, um, how are you today? And I was uh, you know, struggling with depression and, and potentially I wasn't as open as I am now. It would be easier for me to say I'm a four out of 10 than it might be to say I've got depression today or I feel depressed. But even, even when you start to share that number, it, as you say, it prompts a conversation. But given it's a very simple number, what we can also do if people are using FormScore via the app that we have, we can aggregate that up to give a real-time metric of team well-being. So if a team, one team was trending down as compared to the organization and they were tagging work and stress as the drivers, then that opens up a need to have a conversation. And I've seen some lovely examples of a CEO noticed that um, one of his direct reports in one of our clients was a four out of 10. They'd got a meeting that day. The first 20 minutes of that meeting then changed direction and was about you know, what was going on for this person at a human level. And then they spoke about their business. So it, it creates moments of connection and awareness of how people are doing. And for the leader or manager who might be fearful, Rob, of hearing the response, where's a good place for them to start with how they can prepare themselves for those kinds of answers? I'll probably draw back to my analogy with cancer again for this, because if one of their reports said, I've been diagnosed with cancer, what they wouldn't do is really be worrying about whether they could prescribe the correct course of chemotherapy or radiography. What they would do is they would say, I'm sorry, that's rubbish. Um, let me give you a hug. Do you want to go for a walk? What do you need? How can I be of help to you? Whereas if someone said, I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is much more stigmatized than anxiety and depression, for example, then a lot of people would run a mile because of fear and lack of understanding. Just think about how you would react to a physical condition and you're not there to have the answers and to fix. You're not qualified to do that. What you are qualified to do is be a human. And listen. Now, there's some great tools, some great free tools that for those that are interested in improving listening skills, they could use. So the Samaritans have got a great course called Wellbeing in the Workplace. So it helps with non-judgmental listening, which anyway, for a leader is a pretty great skill, as I'm, I'm sure you'd agree. I do. And I love, though, what you've just said. What a beautiful, simple reminder. What can I carry across? Yeah, but I think it comes from the need to fix. We're all, we're all fixing things, and particularly in the workplace, we're paid to fix things. 
Um, and so when something comes up that actually we have no idea how to fix, the, the, the initial reaction is to back off. Um, we don't need to fix this. We can't fix this, but we can be human. We can be there. So Rob, already time is flying. I wonder from there whether I could take you to your letter mm-hmm. and ask you who you wrote to and why. So I, I wrote my letter to John Flint. And John was the, um, the former CEO of uh, HSBC PLC. Dear John, and it's not one of those Dear John breakup <laughs> letters, by the way. <laughs> Dear John, when you were CEO of HSBC, in your first management call, you set out the goal of creating the healthiest human system in financial services. And I want to thank you for making the health of the humans, who we know are your greatest assets, as a goal of yours as CEO. I deeply admire the courage that this took. And I know from talking to you that most CEOs have the playbook, be it cost-cutting, entering new markets or mergers and acquisitions. The easy thing to do would be to follow such a playbook. The courageous thing to do was to focus on the people that you lead. Well, John, you tore up that playbook and you chose to do the right thing. Work should be a life-enhancing experience. And thank you to the CEO of the Environment Agency for making that a core value. Yet for many employees who are also deemed the greatest assets of their companies, this is sadly not the case. Work is often the main factor that is detrimental to mental health. We can and must do better. We need to create workplace cultures that are conducive to the creation of good work, where people are trusted to do their jobs with autonomy and flexibility, and where they're not led by fear. Where people feel as psychologically safe as they do physically, and where the prioritization of well-being is seen as an essential component of high performance, and not a soft and fluffy nice to have. And cultures where people are paid fairly and that are inclusive. It is my opinion that the CEOs who create cultures like this will forge companies that outperform their peers with happier, healthier, and more productive workforces. John, thank you for showing others how it should be done. Thank you for doing the right thing for those you had the privilege of leading. Thank you, Rob. I think it's so interesting, isn't it? Because as you said that, I thought, yeah, it it actually is still a world where it feels courageous to prioritise well-being. I think for a CEO, that is a really courageous move. It is is really courageous to say, I'm going to go slightly against the tide here because I believe this is the right thing to do. And I also believe it's a better outcome because that brings risk. You know, that brings risk. Now, John, John's tenure as CEO of HSBC was not a lot, as long as any of us would have liked to have seen it to be. He achieved good results. But I think he'd probably have got longer in that role if he'd have followed one of the classic CEO playbooks. So if you're a CEO thinking, you know, I kind of like my job and I kind of want to keep being a CEO, actually treating well-being as a core value of that CEO tenure is a, is a risk and it requires courage um, until we kind of normalise it and, and win over hearts and minds so people know that actually if we do prioritise well-being, then the results will follow and, and, and yeah, the two aren't mutually exclusive. And I wonder whether there's something about tenure in that, actually, Rob, as you say that, which requires courage. Hmm. 
to say to yourself as you go into a role, if I'm going to make this difference, there might need to be some acceptance that I might not be in the role as long as I would ideally love to be, but it's about the change I want to make and the legacy I want to leave rather than the length of time I'm there. I I think think that's right. Absolutely. Now, I think it is changing. And I think the reason it's changing is because of the war for talent, the shortage of resource and the fact that whether you look at um, all the surveys that are coming out on what employees want and what prospective employees want, what graduates want, one of the key things is investment in well-being. Um, So that is forcing organisations to treat this more seriously and it be a less courageous decision for a CEO of a big company. But it still is right now, I would say. And perhaps even more courageous for a leader or manager where that isn't being led by the CEO. For sure, yeah. I mean, I, I spend a proportion of my time talking to, to boards or ex-co's on why this issue is important and how to do it. And so often you know, through the people function or the well-being leader, um, you know, we, we, we need to influence the board a little bit as to really why is this such an important issue. And I'm curious, Rob, when you do that, when you need to influence the board what factors do you reference so that there is of course we're both agreed I think that the human piece is the number one most important but if that's not been enough up until this point how else do you influence those boards to prioritize and value this work by sharing my own story as a confident man in front of a board that can often ground this in a very personal experience so i'll share my challenges of living and working with bipolar and my journey to recovery but you've got to think if you if you've got 10 people sitting around a board probably 90 percent of those nine out of ten will either have experienced a mental health challenge directly have a, a a son or a daughter or a loved one you know it's that common so actually grounding it in in the the personal and the human is important but i think for those that that need to see some metrics you know there's plenty of business reasons why we need to do this as i mentioned one actually if you want to attract talent you've got to have a believable story about this and you've got to show that you are genuine about investing in well-being um from the bright network 91 percent of graduates want to see um look at what an employer is doing from a well-being point of view 40% of people uh, interviewed by LinkedIn on the Talent Trends survey want to see more investment in in well-being. So you can't ignore this from a talent um, and employer brand perspective. And then you can get into productivity. So Deloitte, for the last three years, have done uh, some great analysis on the cost of mental ill health to UK employers. The 2020 numbers were out. It's something like 56 billion is the cost to UK employers. Um, 29 billion of that is presenteeism. Now, presenteeism are people turning up to work but not performing as well as they could due to suboptimal mental well-being. So this is a great opportunity to boost productivity if we get this right. Because if we can actually help people thrive more of the time, be on the form score scale, a seven, eight, or even a nine more of the time, they will be more productive. If we can stop people being ill, they will be more productive. Um, So it is one of those rare occasions where the right thing to do, the human thing to do, agrees with the business case. And as soon as you say that, joining those dots feels so obvious. Yeah. And yet we don't necessarily do it. Well, no, because it takes a bit of courage, right? We're back to that point. And 
um, we're, we're, we're trained that we that mental illness is weakness. You know, it's not weak to break our leg and shuffle around. Uh, people will sign that and celebrate it, you know, the cast. But it is seen as it has been seen as weak to think, OK, if I talk about depression, am I you know, going to get promoted to the board? And many people will feel that's not the case because the stigma is still strong, even though the awareness is is, is greater. And you talked in your letter, and it feels connected to what you've just said, about the relationship between inclusion and well-being. Can you say a bit more about what you've noticed there? Since I've been open about my depression and bipolar, the instances of it and the severity have been decreased. Now, part of that is because I'm not carrying the burden of pretending to be something I'm not. And so actually to create a truly create a workplace that is thriving we need to be able to make sure that workplace is inclusive um, and people can be themselves now we're not when we're not there yet now that agenda is moving on for sure um, and there's good work being done but until people can really feel they can be themselves whatever that authentic self is then the part of the cost will be less optimal mental health than it could be and such a powerful question for a leader or manager to ask, to what extent do you feel you can be yourself? Yeah. And, you know, if you care about this culture and you're not getting enough yeses to that question, then you're not there yet, which is fine. But you've got to work out how to get them. And so much of what I've noticed about this conversation, Rob, is not is that it's all about it's about the questions and the listening and the quality yeah. of those questions and the quality of the listening that comes with them. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, we, we need to ask questions on this, but I, th I think the best leaders are questioning, right? Mm. The best leaders ask, do a lot more listening than they do speaking. Um, and, you know, one way to, uh, to, to facilitate that listening is to ask a lot of questions and be curious and curiosity. I think is, um, probably a, 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 you know, we don't talk about that as a trait of leaders, but I think, you know, curious leaders and curious as to, how their people are and who their people are um it's a wonderful thing right for those that are naturally do it and not only for those who naturally do it but i think we forget that these are skills we can cultivate yeah 100 percent. i think it gets into the question then of how are we promoting people to leaders to positions of leadership um which we know is is typically based on the success in the job they've done before um and that they're possibly no longer doing so thinking about how we might identify leadership talent based on some of these characteristics is really interesting. In, in the very first episode of this podcast, Michael Islip used the phrase rewarding excellence with management. <laughs> yes. And it's been a theme. It's been something that's come up time and time again, because you're absolutely right. It, it happens. And when are we promoting? Why are we promoting? How are we promoting? What are the skills we're ensuring that the people we're promoting have so that they can facilitate the well-being of those they're serving yeah i think i think that's right and i think we need to give them more help you know we can't expect them just to suddenly have that and you're right these skills are trainable and I, I think there's a real opportunity to to change the way we do things for the better um again if we're courageous if we're bold which would be great to see literally the more of that the better yeah wouldn't it there's a couple of things we're, we're drawing close to our time together. There are a couple of things I'd love to ask you. One is to sort of circle right back to where you began in terms of the world of sport. Is there anything that you haven't touched on yet that you'd love to see leaders draw on 
more consistently from the world of sport? Yeah, I've kind of touched on it, but I, in, when, when I was saying that Michael Jordan wouldn't be the, the athlete that he was without looking after his well-being, I think you know, when we look at leading our teams, thinking about even in busy, stressful environments, are we helping our team be the best that they can be as leaders or you know are we coaching our team and it's not just about the work it's about you know are you recovering from the work so i'll give you a, a good example one of our role models from the leaderboard is a deals tax partner at pwc leads a team of about 200 and that he's introduced something called well-being non-negotiables in the team everybody in the team will identify what are the two or three things we need to stay well could be that five-a-side football game, the book club, getting home to have dinner with family, whatever it is. And they share that within their teams on deals. And then when the um, deal gets busy and the long hours are required, what they will still do within the team is hold each other to account on their well-being non-negotiables. So this does a, a number of things. It creates permission to still prioritise well-being right from the top, but through the team level. It forces people also to think about, actually, what are my well-being non-negotiables? And then by sharing them, it creates a social contract. So, you know, for me, it's that, that leadership on looking after the team and using a way to facilitate that, I think, is, is beautiful in that example. It really is. I've often talked about in, in the world of sport, the recovery is part of the work. And it's something that we could really translate across to the world of work more powerfully. Well, yeah. And, and reco- you, you only improve as an athlete during the recovery phase, you don't re- you don't improve in the intense training. It's actually you know your your body adapts to that in the recovery phase. And the problem that we've got as the corporate athlete is we go from one back to back competition style stress event to another, and actually the price is ultimately burnout and, and mental health challenges. But the price for most is we're not achieving our potential because we're not allowing ourselves to recover. And, and come up with those ideas and take that space and have that thinking time and, and actually be ready for the next major event because we're going back to back to back to back. Um, and a lot of it what might be a lack of resource. And that's a bigger, different question. Are we staffing up our, our businesses properly? But I think it's habitual. And I think we can break that habit by scheduling breaks, scheduling thinking time, pursuing hobbies, getting our exercise in and just changing the balance of what we're prioritising. And there's such a, an important piece of recognition, I think, in there, Rob, so recognising the price. We tend not to recognise the price until it's a really, really heavy one. And yet hearing you say that, I recognise the price of not realising our potential or being consistently a bit under par, which isn't good enough, is it? It's, it's not good enough and it's not necessary. I, lo- I love my analogies. I'll give you another one, which is brushing your teeth. You know, we're trained very well to brush our teeth. I'm you know, constantly having battles with my eight-year-old to brush his teeth, uh, you know, both at the start of the day and at the end of the day. But we're trained to do it. Now, I brush my teeth twice a day, at least. Most people do. Um, we don't wait till we get intense tooth pain to start caring for our teeth. You know, We'll often go to the dentist to see the hygienist to, to actually give us that you know, kind of healthy teeth and very clean teeth. So why would we do it with our brains and our minds? Why would we wait till we're in crisis before we start looking after our minds? We wouldn't do it. We care for our teeth better than we do care for our minds because we're trained to do so. Well, that, as you can tell, has got me thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure it has the people that are listening too. Rob, before I let you go, I wonder 
having given us that really powerful point of reflection, whether I could ask you for one more thing, and that's a that's a resource. So we love to share here something either to read or watch or listen to. What's a recommendation that you would make for our listeners? Well, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, from, from a podcast perspective, Jen Fisher, who is a friend of mine, she's the uh, Chief Wellbeing Officer of Deloitte in the US. And she's got a, I think it's called Live Well, Work Well podcast. So again, a lot of this sort of stuff that we've been talking about in more detail on her podcast. And then from a read, from a book perspective, I've got this great book and I recommend it in audiobook form, um, which is The Master and His Emissary by uh, Ian McGilchrist. And it's quite a weighty look at the kind of worldviews of the left and right hemispheres of the brain. Now, I love this for two reasons. One, it's just really interesting and it makes you think and you've got to concentrate on it if you want to kind of take it in properly. But it's also a brilliant way of getting to sleep. So I, you know, put it, it's just amazing. So, you know, if I'm ever, if I ever wake up in the middle of the night and you're tossing and turning, my mind's on fire, I'll put old Ian on. And it's not Ian doing the, the narration. It's a very soporific voice. And I'll set a timer on 30 minutes and it'll just send me straight back out. So I'm figuring I'm taking in the you know, knowledge of the brain whilst getting back to sleep. Love it. And it sounds like if you buy the hard copy, you could do some weights with it too. <laughs> yeah, you, you probably could. Rob, you have given us so much food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for having me. This is Leadership Letters. Time now then for this month's Leadership Letters Lowdown. Having heard so many useful examples of questions in the workplace around well-being, we're going to continue with a focus on questions for leaders. Not least because I spent some time with the leadership team recently looking not at what answers they were getting, but at the questions they were asking. So with the help of a wall and a whole heap of post-it notes, we took a deep dive into what questions they were asking regularly, what questions they were asking occasionally, what the gaps were in the questions they were asking because they weren't asking them at all. And then we looked at the consistency of the questions that they were asking, whether some individuals or teams were asked questions that others weren't. Even deeper, we dived into the timing of the questions that were being asked and whether that was the most helpful timing or indeed the most helpful location. And then we considered the tone in which questions were being asked and what impact that might have on the responses that leaders were getting. It generated a whole heap of insight into who was being asked what and by whom and when and how. And that in turn generated some important actions. And it's an exercise that you could easily do as a team or as an individual leader. Now, questions are very much a foundation of what I do as a coach and facilitator. So I thought I'd also share this month a few questions that I love to ask. And the first of those came about actually as a result of one of these podcasts, where Jenny Kitchen wrote her leadership letter to Paul Polman and referenced the steps he took early in his tenure as CEO of Unilever. There's a link in the notes where you can read more about that or go back and listen. It's episode four of our second season. And I think this story generates some really interesting questions that leaders and leadership teams can ask themselves to generate insight. The first of those is, what is the boldest move that you would make as a leader if you knew you were guaranteed the backing of all your stakeholders, every single one of them, whatever level, internally, externally, what's the boldest move you would make? 
And this isn't a question about being guaranteed the success or the result of that move. Simply, what would you do if you were guaranteed the backing for it? And I think Paul Polman's story also generates an interesting question about first days. So knowing what you know now, having been in your role, if tomorrow were to be your first day, what would you do? What would you keep doing? What would you change? What would you have greater confidence in? What would you share? There are so many insights and perspectives you could generate from asking yourself this question. Could reveal you're totally on track with everything you wanted to do. Or it could reveal some quite nuanced changes you want to make. These what-if questions can be really useful to us as leaders. So here's another. What if you knew they would never leave? The reality of the workplace is that there are misunderstandings and tensions. There are relationships at work that can sometimes get stuck in unhelpful patterns or assumptions. Words, behaviours that aren't bringing out the best in each other. And we could be kind to ourselves about that. It's common ground. We've all been in those places where it's difficult. So asking yourself what you would do if that person was never going to leave and you were never going to leave can help take us back to a place of responsibility for what we could do differently, knowing that we can only change ourselves, we can't change others. So the impact of reflecting on this question could be reconnecting to common ground or reminding ourselves of common purpose and goals, reminding ourselves that even though we express it differently and behave in different ways to achieve it, we do want the same things. It's a question that reminds us to look beyond our frustration or judgment and seek ways we can restore and repair. There's that lovely quote I've returned to time and time again, the Rumi quote, outside the idea of right doing and wrong doing is a field. I'll meet you there. And asking yourself these what if type questions can help us get to that place of curiosity and taking joint responsibility rather than being stuck in judgment and blame. And a final simple and powerful question to offer you today is what else? This is a deceptively simple question that we use all the time in coaching and facilitation. It's a question that's about truly exhausting your thinking, making sure that all options, possibilities and ideas are out there and available for consideration. It's about expanding thinking so that we're creating more choice for what we then go on to think, say and do. And one of the reasons what else can be such a useful question for leaders is that when we're listening to something, listening to a whole load of ideas, for example, we might unconsciously stop at the one that we like the best or stop at the one that we've also been thinking about ourselves, or stop at the one that we've never even considered before and that really excites us. The discipline of continuing to ask, what else, what else, what else, until there really truly is nothing left, means that all ideas and all options are out there for consideration. Even the ones that are so obvious they might seem ridiculous, even the ones that might seem impossible even the ones that are actually what you already do. What else is about generating insight, expanding perspective and creating choices? So let me know how you get on with reflecting on these individually or perhaps with your team or indeed the questions that you find most useful that we could continue to share here with this community. You can get in touch at thecausewaycoaching.com 
Well, you'll also find the notes with links to all the articles and resources we refer to in the podcast and a whole lot more resources besides. Speaking of resources, let's leave you, as we always do, with a read, watch and listen to recommendation. My to read recommendation this month is by Brené Brown. If you've listened to this before, you'll know I'm a big fan of her work. In her book, Rising Strong, she unpicks the benefits of going towards the things that challenge us the most and how to do that with curiosity and compassion for ourselves and for others. She explores what it is to struggle, to be vulnerable, and how to build resilience and response to those struggles. And there are many powerful questions she offers us in this book. Three of those are, what more do I need to learn and understand about the situation? What more do I need to learn and understand about the other people in the story? And what more do I need to learn and understand about myself? My to watch recommendation this month is a TED talk. It's called Ask Better Questions to Build Better Connections. And it's by Amber L. Wright. Full of examples and reminders of the kinds of questions that foster connection and lead to insights, as well as the reminder that a good question is nothing without being followed up by good listening. And the to listen to recommendation is episode 294, no less, of Lex Fridman's podcast, where he interviews the co-creator of the iPhone, Tony Fadell. Tons to take away from this. It's a two-hour conversation, so one you might dip in and out of. I really enjoyed Lex Fridman's questioning and particularly when they were talking about purpose and why, which is something we've heard about before on this podcast is widely talked about as crucial to leadership is to know your purpose, know your why. But Fridman's questioning goes beyond that and asks Fidel to talk about where the why comes from, whose why is it, whose why does it serve? and what the leader's role should be in relation to that why. There's also a trip down memory lane for those of us who remember the kinds of phones that you couldn't watch movies on. So really highly recommend that. I hope you enjoy those recommendations. And as ever, please do get in touch with any recommendations you'd like to add, or indeed, if you would like to write a letter to a leader that has inspired you, and you want to come on and talk all things leadership here on Leadership Letters. So that's it for now. We're about to take a little bit of a break over the summer and we'll be back with more great guests in the second half of this season of Leadership Letters early in the autumn. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. See you soon. <laughs>